Rock and roll. This episode is sponsored by Less Accounting. Are you looking for a system that makes it easy to track all of your expenses, income, and your budget? Is QuickBooks too much of a pain for you? It was for me, and I switched to Less Accounting, and I love it. It makes things really easy to keep track of and gives me a lot of charts and graphs that make it easy for me to look at and just know where I'm at with my expenses and everything else. One of the owners, Alan Branch, and his son have written a book for entrepreneurs' children that talks about what entrepreneurs do and why they're important. So if you're interested in that, then go to lessaccounting.com slash hero. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the first place I go to keep my business skills sharp. They offer over 150,000 books on business, finance, planning, and much more. They also have a great selection of fiction that keeps me entertained when I'm just not up for some serious content. I love it because I can buy a book, download it to my iPhone, and listen while running errands or at the gym. Get your free trial at freelancershow.com slash audible. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to freelancershow.com slash CodeSchool. This episode is brought to you by ProXPN. If you're out and about on public Wi-Fi, you never know who might be listening. With ProXPN, you no longer have to worry. ProXPN is a VPN solution which sends all of your traffic over a secure connection to one of their servers around the world. To sign up, go to ProXPN.com and use the promo code TMTCS, short for Teach Me to Code Screencasts, to get 10% off for life. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 127 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. Curtis McHale. G'day. Reuven Lerner. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Daniel Pink. Do you want to introduce yourself, Daniel? Uh, sure, thanks. Yeah. yeah, well, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, my name is Daniel Pink. I live in Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm a writer. I've written uh, five books, uh, all of them about business, behavioral science, uh, and the world of work. And I'm glad to be with you guys uh, talking about freelancing because I've been self-employed for 17 years. Awesome. So I had a lot of people recommend your To Sell is Human to me. And so I went and picked it up. And then I started telling everybody else that they had to read it. Um, Thanks. <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, it's a terrific book. The thing that it answered for me, and I'm, I'm kind of curious to see what your take on it is, is that uh, I have a lot of people ask me about freelancing. And when I get talking to them, they basically say, yeah, but I just, I can't sell. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess my, I can give you a kind and polite answer or an honest answer. The honest answer would be get over it. Uh, <laughs> the, the kind and polite answer would be that it's an essential part of any job right now. I mean, the idea that if you have traditional employment, that is, you're a W-2 worker at some large organization, and that you yourself in that kind of role don't have to sell, influence, persuade, convince, cajole, you're fooling yourself. I mean, it's an integral part of every kind of work. And for people who are self-employed, you know, it's just a little bit more prominent, a little bit more above the surface than below the surface. Now, as I continue the kind answer, what the good news in all, I think there's some good news in all of this. Number one is that the way that the world of selling anything, an idea, a concept, a business, a product, a service, some kind of professional offering, the way that world works right now is very different from our stereotype of salespeople as slimy and sleazy and, and duplicitous. And 
today to be effective in this world of selling, you can actually be a little bit more like a human being. You don't have to be a sleaze bag. It doesn't require a certain kind of slick, extroverted personality. And so it's much more at people's fingertips than they ever, than, than many of them at least ever imagined. That's really interesting. And it's really true. I mean, I, I talked to several people. They, you know, they work for consulting firms or different things like that. And I'm just like, well, why don't you just go out on your own? And they're like, well, I can't sell. And usually I'm telling them something like that where it's, well, you know, you do client proposals, right? And you're, yeah, you, know, exactly. you do all of these other things. And effectively, the only part of the sales process you're not doing is, and here's the number, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. And also when you think about sales, I mean, sales... You know, if you think about, I mean, this is one of the core ideas in the book is that if you look at how people actually spend their time at work, again, whether they're working for themselves or whether they're more traditionally employed, uh, if you look at how people actually spend their time, they spend an enormous portion of it persuading, influencing, convincing other people. Now, it's not always, will you buy my widget or will you engage my design firm? But you are trying to get colleagues to see things your way. You're trying to get someone to work on your team rather than another team. You are pitching an idea at a meeting. And so it's so intricately woven into the world of work today that it becomes in its own way unavoidable. And so, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily have to go jumping up and down with joy about that. But I think if you really unpack what it takes to sell, persuade, convince effectively today, People are often reassured because you don't have to be Herb Tarlick from WKRP in Cincinnati. You don't have to be a slimy used car salesperson. You can actually be more transparent, more normal, more human. Yeah, and even this morning, I do software development. I was talking with another software developer about a project we're working on, and I proposed solution A, he proposed solution B, and so I you know, use some sell stuff I know to say, okay, B would work, but A is better because of these reasons and walk him through that. And then by the end of it, he's like, yeah, actually A is better. Let's do A. So it was, you know, a little bit of persuasion. And I mean, this is a software developer to software developer. I mean, you can't get much more introverted and non-typical right. salesy. Right, right, right. So, I mean, I think, I mean, I totally agree with you guys, which is why that my initial less kind answer is probably more efficient, which is to tell people get over it. And then... You know, try to give them some guidance, some tools to do it effectively. Yep. I found that many of whom I speak talk to about freelancing. They're not necessarily scared of the, or not interested in the sales part, but when they then have to assign a dollar value to it, that's when they, they sort of get a little nervous because they've never, it's one thing to say to someone, I think I can do a good job. It's another thing to say, I think I can do a good job. So good, in fact, that you should pay me money for it. Or at least yeah. people seem to see a threshold there. I think that's a really good point, and some of that comes with experience. There's an initial discomfort. There are a couple of ways. I'll tell you what I've seen over the years, and, and keep in mind that my very first book, written way back, came out in 2001, was a book called Free Agent Nation, about the rise of people working for themselves. And to report that book, I traveled around the U.S. interviewing hundreds and hundreds of people who were freelancing who were self-employed, who were doing these kinds of things. And I noticed, I noticed one interesting phenomenon and then one solution. The interesting phenomenon was that I think that people get into a bad habit of underpricing their talents. I think that in many cases, a lot of really talented professionals don't charge enough. 
And the, the challenge there is that if you start out in a relationship with a client or a set of clients or, you know, that is too low, then at some level, you're kind of sort of locked into it for a long time. And so that's the problem. And that what I have seen out there among freelancers and self-employed people isn't a problem that, oh, well, we're, they're charging too much, is that in many cases, I think they're charging too little. The second thing is the way around that is, is actually to team up with other people and, you know, get some advice from others about what you should charge. And so if you hear other people saying you should charge X rather than X minus 20%, that might embolden you to charge what you're worth. You know, freelancing in general takes some steely nerves and on a number of different dimensions. But one of them is, and this is just, I think, a cardinal principle of negotiation of anything. And I say this, having learned it at some level the hard way, is that, you know, anytime you go in to negotiate something, you have to be willing to let the deal crater. If you're not willing to walk away, then you're going to get a raw deal. And that's sometimes really, really hard to do. But because you fear, oh my God, I'm never going to get an opportunity again. But the more people are seasoned and the more they talk to seasoned people, the more they realize that the deals you walk away from are sometimes the smartest moves you make in your working life. I think one of the reasons a lot of people are scared to say no is that they haven't backed their whole business on like a solid set of savings or something, so they can say no. That's right? a good point, they too. Came yeah. in, they came in as a technician. They can technically do their job, but there's a whole different thing as a business owner. Right? Yeah, and I, think, and I think early on, that's a very, very good point, too. And, and you know, there are all these, I mean, that's, you know, that, that's another hugely, hugely important insight that I'm sure you guys have explored, which is that there is something that wearing the hat of the skilled graphic designer or the skilled programmer is different from wearing the hat of the owner of the design business or owner of the coding business. I think that's a, I think that's a good point. But you know, the other thing is that how much a lot of this stuff goes away with experience. It really does. And the first one is hardest to carry out, and then you get a little bit more emboldened and a little bit more emboldened. At the same time, I think there's also, if I can contradict myself in the face of a 30-second period, I think that there's also something to be said early on, if you're just starting out, for basically saying yes to everything you can say yes to, just to build up the experience, to build up the context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you learn the things that you do want to do and don't want to do, right? Yeah, exactly. I got that advice when I first started freelancing. Someone said to me, look, you don't want to say no deals, you don't want to say yes to things. And so I sort of carried that a little too long and a little too far. And I should have modified the way that you did now, which is say yes at the beginning so that you can get some experience and understand what's going on. But then at a certain point, it's important to say no. It's important to walk away. Yeah, how did you figure out, you know, I think that's right. I look at the arc of my own stuff where, you know, I would say yes to everything at the beginning, and now, you know, I, I actually think that it's smarter business in many cases for me to say no a lot of the time. But how did you figure out when you turn that corner from yes, oh. as, the default answer to, from yes as the default answer to no as the default answer? I think part of it is just taking that leap and being bold, right? Yeah, and I also think that it comes down to when you feel like you can say no. Yeah. So in a lot of cases, you get to that point where you have the money in the bank, you have enough work, you have whatever, whatever, whatever. You've been able to vet the job to the point where you go, yeah, I'm going to hate myself if I say yes. Right. Well, and for me, it was actually, I didn't have a choice. I was so busy that I couldn't take anything else on. And I made a choice to not hire or do a lot of subcontracting stuff. So I literally had people coming to me and I'm like, I can't work with you. And 
then I missed out on one that looked really promising. And I kicked myself for not having the flexibility or the free time to take that project now. And so now I'm actually stricter and do no earlier on. So I have that flexibility if that kind of opportunity comes back around. That's really interesting. I do want to ask a few questions about the book. The first one is, where did this come from? What made you want to write this book? Well, it was a couple of things. One of them was just looking at my own, how I spent my own time. And I, you know, I went back and looked at something like about two weeks worth of calendar entries just to see, like, what the hell was I doing for the last two weeks? So I felt like I wasn't getting anything done. And I found that when you unpacked it, looked at it, you know, unpacked what I was actually doing, looked at it through a slightly different lens, a big portion of what I was doing every single day was selling. And it wasn't necessarily saying, hey, buy my book, buy my book. But it was, you know, talking to an editor and trying to say, wow, that's a really bad idea for an article. It's, you know, um, you better, you know, how can I talk you out of that? Uh, it was telling, you know, trying to get my kids to do certain kinds of things, trying to get a, a gate agent at an airline to move me to an aisle seat, et cetera, et cetera. And one of my principles as a writer is fairly well-known journalistic adage, which is to always extrapolate from your own experience. You're not that special. We tend to think we're much more special and unique than we really are. So I figured if I was doing this, and a lot of other people were doing it. The other uh, impetus for it was a previous book that I wrote. That was a book called Drive, and that, that looked at about 50 years of behavioral science on human motivation. And the core idea of that book is that if you look at this science, forget about our intuitions, if you look at you know really this really rich body of half century of behavioral science, what it shows is that certain kinds of motivators, what I call if-then motivators, as in if you do this, then you get that, if-then motivators are extremely effective for simple routine kinds of tasks, but they're not very effective at all for more complex creative tasks because they narrow your focus when you should be widening it. And in response to that book, people said to me, well, what about sales? You know, how do we compensate salespeople, people who have a formal, discrete function in selling stuff? We give them commissions. If you sell, then you make money. If you don't sell, then you hit the bricks. And I thought it was an interesting question. Uh, I'd been writing about business for almost 20 years, had never written anything about sales. And uh, I started hearing from companies that had done really interesting things. I mean, several companies. They, they, they emailed me and they would say, hey, this is really interesting because it explains this funky thing that we did that we didn't have an explanation for, but now we actually have a better understanding of why it worked. You see, we eliminated commissions for our salespeople and sales went up. Well, that's kind of weird. And so, um, so that got me into it. And I realized, as I forgive this long answer here, but I realized as I was exploring this that, you know, I was selling and persuading all the time. A lot of the salespeople whom I'd met over the years were not like the stereotype slick, sleazy, used car salesman, and it was something that all of us were doing, and I just felt like it was a topic that in certainly in business books, uh, in the popular press, hadn't been taken seriously enough. So I decided to write a book about sales for people who might not ever read a book about sales. I have a couple of other questions. One is, toward the beginning of the book, you mentioned that the extrovert isn't necessarily the best salesman. Right. Well, uh, let's talk about that because, you know, this book, To Sell as Human, like uh, a couple of my previous books, a lot of it is very much rooted in some really, really great recent research in behavioral science. So it isn't, here's my intuition about what will work. Here's my guess about what will work. Here's my philosophy about what will work. But really, what does the evidence tell us about what works and what doesn't? And so the extroversion, introversion thing is a great example. So the conventional view, very, very widely held 
is that the very best salespeople are extroverts. And some of the evidence bears this out. Extroverts are more likely to go into sales. Extroverts are more likely to get hired in sales jobs. Extroverts are more likely to get promoted in sales jobs. But when you look at the evidence, the trait of extroversion, the correlation between the trait of extroversion and sales performance, okay, not who gets hired or promoted, but who sells stuff, that correlation is almost zero. So that's kind of weird, right? So does this mean that introverts are better sellers than extroverts? This would be pretty remarkable. Well, it turns out that's not the case either. Uh, it's much more nuanced than that. Here's what the research shows. Strong introverts are terrible salespeople. They're too quiet. They don't assert. They're uncomfortable in social situations. Not a big surprise. Strong extroverts, though, here's the bigger surprise. They're also terrible. In fact, they're almost as bad. If you look, this is research from Adam Grant at the University of Pennsylvania. Strong are extroverts these, are... Are they the sleazy uh, salespeople we tend to cringe from? Sure, that's part of it. It's partly sleaze. It, you know, forget about duplicity here for a moment. It's just, you know, I mean, what does a strong extrovert not do very well? Listen. Bingo! That's exactly it. All right? And so listening ends up being this, extra, you know, extraordinarily important in sales. They don't listen. They come on too strong, et cetera, et cetera. So the people who, now here's where it gets, I think, interesting and because it's nuanced. So strong introverts are terrible salespeople. Strong extroverts, here's the surprise, they stink too. So who does the best? Well, the people who do the best are what are called ambiverts, A-M-B-I-V-E-R-T-S, like an ambidextrous, ambiverts. And here's the things that I'm frustrated about, is that I think we often have these two black and white binary ways of describing who people are, how they work, what makes them tick, etc. Ambivert is a term that's been in the literature since the 1920s, and it describes people who are somewhat extroverted, somewhat introverted. They're not strongly one way or the other. And it turns out, according to this research from Adam Grant at Penn, published in, you know, the leading behavioral science journal in the world, that ambiverts make the best salespeople. The people in the middle are by far the best salespeople. And now that makes sense. It makes sense if you just go to the prefix. Ambi, where else have we heard this? Ambidextrous, right? They can go left, they can go right. Ambiverts, know when to speak up, know when to shut up. Know when to push, know when to hold back. Know when to assert, know when to respond. Uh, they're much more versatile. And the best news of all of this, and it goes, it goes very much to your very, very first question, is that most of us are ambiverts. If you look at the population, the distribution of introversion and extroversion in the population, here's what it looks like. A few of us are very strong introverts. A few of us are very strong extroverts. But most of us are kind of in the middle. Most of us are ambiverts, which means that, again, going back to your, you know, our initial part of the conversation, that the way to be better at sales is to just be a little bit more like yourself. Don't try to ape the strong extroverted, the, ex the strongly extroverted guy, you know, the backslapping, grinning kind of fool. They're not very good at it. You just want to be a better version of yourself and you want to be calibrated. You want to be able to listen and talk. You want to be able to push. You want to be able to hold back. And the good news is that most of us are ambiverts, which means that most of us have these native capacities. Wow. That's really cool. It ought to be reassuring for a lot of us. I mean, I'm someone who is, you know, much more introverted than extroverted. So if you were to plot, I mean, there's a way to plot introversion and extroversion on a seven-point scale. So one through seven. So one is extremely introverted. Seven is extremely extroverted. You know, one super strong introvert, seven super strong extrovert. 
And, you know, you test me and I'm, you know, maybe a 2.5. All right. It turns out that 2.5 is, is not a strong introvert, is, a, is an introvert, but not a strong one. It's sort of an, you know, it, it's much more ambiverted. And so if I can, you can't change your, your inner nature, but, but if I can go from a 2.5 and learn some of the techniques of extroverts and be a 3 on that 7-point scale, that's really good. And so someone who is a 6, say someone's a 5.5, more extroverted than, than introverted, they're never going to be, take a job, you know, do what I do, which is sit in my office by myself, you know, all day long and swear at the computer. They would go crazy doing that. But they can maybe learn from their introverted friends and maybe go from a 5.5 to a 5 on that 7-point scale. That's very, very good. That's where all the action is. And so this ought to reassure us that to be effective in sales, persuasion, influence, we don't have to be a certain way. Indeed, we're, in most cases, not all, in most cases, we're better off just trying to be a sharper version of ourselves. Yeah, and in some cases, like, it's not faking it, but I've, I'm very introverted, but like, I just got off a sales call a few minutes ago, and before the sales call, I prepped, I did all my research, you know, typical technical introverted stuff, and kind of built myself up enough so that I was more confident going into the call than I normally am. So I kind of pulled from what some extrovert stuff, what some of the very, very extroverted sales techniques are, picked the ones that worked. And then when I was on the call, I found that the other people on the call were more on the introvert side. So I was able to back off. It wasn't as aggressive. And I think just having that flexibility, having a toolkit where I have different techniques I can do actually helps me out when I'm doing any kind of sales thing. That's a, a much better and much more sharp, vivid, and much shorter version of what I was trying to say. I mean, that's exactly the point. And if you look at, again, let's go back to the research, there's some really good research showing that people who have those, I mean, it sounds derogatory, but people who have those sort of ability to chameleon, you know, to sort of shift like that are the ones who are most effective. And the truth is, is that that's within most of our repertoires. I'm going to tell my brother he's an ambivert, and then he's going to swear at me and say, well, you're a... You're a what? I don't know. Something, yeah. something obscene. Anyway. Um, what, you're, <laughs> you're, you're a vegan or something like that? Yeah, there you go. I have another question for you, and this is, you had kind of a replacement idea for the elevator pitch. I'm really curious why you think the elevator pitch isn't as effective as it used to be. Well, there are a couple of reasons why. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying we throw the elevator pitch into the trash heap just yet, but there are a couple of reasons why. Number one is that there are other kinds of pitches that we know from behavioral science, we have a way of verifying their persuasive power in a way that we often don't with typical elevator pitches. That's one thing. The second thing is that essentially everybody now has an elevator pitch, so it's hard to differentiate yourself. What I want to suggest is that we widen our repertoires with other kinds of pitches. And there's some really, really excellent research that gives us some clues about how to do it better. I'm happy to talk more about that if you want. Sure, unless somebody else has a question. Yeah, I think it's important for people to be able to you know, convey what they do to clients. That's something I see a lot of freelancers struggle with. Yeah, well, let me, let, let's go back to first principles here. There's, some, there's a great piece of research from scholars at University of California, Davis, and Stanford on that changed my view of pitching. What these researchers did is they went to, for several years, they went around with screenwriters who were pitching movie ideas to producers. And they, they were in the room, they were recording these conversations, they did this for several years. I mean, it's incredibly rich, exhaustive qualitative research. This is a paper that won one of the big awards in their field. And what they found, and again, this is what reshaped my view of pitching, is this, is that 
the very best pitchers were not, we tend to think of pitching as a way to convert. So I pitch something to you. I do a little song and dance, you know, a little soft shoe routine, and then you say, yes, that's brilliant. Uh, and that's not how the most effective pitchers worked. Instead, they crafted, their pitches were really more invitations to collaborate. And the best predictor of success in pitching was how much you welcomed in the other side as a collaborator and even co-creator. And so we can't think of pitching as a way to, it's like a, a lightning bolt that we send out to try to convert people. We have to think of it as an invitation to a, a conversation. Now, once we get past that, there's a lot of really, really good evidence for different ways to pitch. Let me give you a couple of examples of it. One of my favorites is this. There's some research. I'll give you the research because I think it's pretty interesting. Some research out of Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. Here's what the researchers did. They had two groups of participants. They gave group one a list of proverbs. These proverbs rhyme. Things like woes unite foes. Things like caution and measure will win you treasure. They gave a second group proverbs. These proverbs were identical in their sentiment, but they didn't rhyme. Instead of woes unite foes, woes unite enemies. Instead of caution and measure will win you treasure, caution and measure will win you riches. Okay? Obviously, the participants didn't know what was being measured. And so what the researcher said is, what we want you to do is to evaluate whether these proverbs are accurate depictions of the human condition. So here's what happened. They had the same set of proverbs, basically, just that one rhymed and one didn't. The people with the rhyming proverbs were much more likely to say, oh, yeah, this is a very, very astute and accurate depiction of the human condition than the people who got the exact same proverbs in a way that didn't rhyme. Then they went back to that first group and said, well, did the fact that it rhymed make any difference to you? And they said, no, 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 not at all. And this is what we see over and over again. And here's the key point. Rhymes increase what linguists, cognitive scientists call processing fluency. They go down easier. This is arguably one reason why little kids learn to read with nursery rhymes and Dr. Seuss and those kinds of things. Rhymes increase processing fluency. They go down easier. And so when things go down easier, people are more likely to let them sink in and more likely to take them seriously. So it might sound a little bit cheesy, but pitching with rhymes is enormously effective and people don't do it enough. That's just one very small little tidbit from this research. Very interesting. It's funny just all of these different tools you can use to... Uh you know, to get people's attention and make something stick. Yeah, there's all kinds of great stuff. Another one that, that I think freelancers don't use enough is questions when we pitch. And again, there's some good research there. This, re this is research out of Ohio State. Here's what it shows pretty clearly. Let's go back to the principle. Questions by their very nature elicit an active response, okay? So if I make a statement to you, you might listen to it, but it's more likely it'll just wash over you. When I ask a question... You have to engage just a little bit. Your wheels turn just a little bit more, and that's the power of questions. So what the research shows is that when the facts are clearly on your side, pitching with questions is actually pretty effective. Here's what it does. It gets people to think about what you're proposing and you know, engage with it a little bit more, more deeply and then possibly come to your conclusion for their own reasons. And this is axiomatic. When people have their own reasons to do something, they're more likely to do it. And so when the facts are clearly on your side, pitching with questions is very, very effective. We don't do it enough. What pitching with questions does when the facts are very much on your side is that it allows people to engage, reason through, think through the issue, and then reach the conclusion on their own. And again, you know, 
I mean, this is true in the science of motivation as well. One of the great scholars of the science of motivation said to me, I might quote him in this, one of my previous books, he said, we got to get past this idea that motivation is something that one person does to another and understand that it's something that people do for themselves. And the same thing is true very much with persuasion, that you're more persuasive when you basically create the conditions for people to reach your conclusion rather than you're trying to like, you know, turn a switch and turn a dial in them. I'm going to have to try that. <laughs> uh, do you think you should try it? Oh, I definitely think I should try it. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, yeah, I mean, a great example of it. I mean, there's a great, you know, specific example in American political history, which is in 1980 when Ronald Reagan was a challenger and running against incumbent President Jimmy Carter. Reagan's argument was that Carter had screwed up the economy and that he needed to be kicked out of the White House. And so what Reagan did was instead of saying, you know, your economic situation has deteriorated over the last 48 months. He asked a question. He said very famously, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And that worked, you know, shockingly well. And, and we now have some of the scientific evidence for why that was the case. What happens is, is that people say, oh, let me see. Am I better off than I was four years ago? Let me see here. So 2000, uh, 1976. Okay. Things were not so bad. 1980. Oh my God. Things are terrible. I'm much worse off than I was before. Again, they come to your conclusion on their own, which is always more persuasive. Well, they also have more information about it. I mean, if you beat people over the head with facts, that's only the facts you know. But if you give them a question and they think about it, they can draw on their own personal experiences, their own history, their own facts they know that you might not know, and they might actually use those facts to help persuade themselves in believing you. And so exactly. you know, you, you, it's kind of you're getting out of your own way at that point. Nicely put. Yep, that's exactly what it is. Anyone else have other questions? Because I've got questions, but I, I don't want to monopolize the whole show. I think one of the big things that I took away in this was the, like how you talked about serving a lot. You talked about anytime you're tempted to upsell someone else, stop. Yeah. Stop doing and upserve them instead. And that's, I haven't called it serving, but that is what I have been trying to do for a long time. So why, why do you think that's hard for some people to even think of or to, to start doing? Because the well, freelancers I talk to, they don't, they don't even think of it like that, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just think it's, I, th I just think it's bad habits. I mean, nobody, I, I have not met a single human being who likes to be quote unquote upsold. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because, you know, basically it's a form of duplicity. It's a form of fleecing and it really, really drives me nuts. Um, I mean, I remember I, I tell this story in the book. I mean, very, very briefly is using one of the domain registration services to register a domain. Okay. So I register a domain and I just want to get the domain and get out. And then it gives me a page of like, you know, eight zillion other things that I, that I should be spending my money on. And the page, the URL of the page is www. I don't want to say the name of the vendor because that wouldn't be fair to networksolutions.com. www.networksolutions.com slash upsell. And so it's like, and then I just abandoned the whole transaction there because it was so offensive. So. One of the things going on right now in the world of sales in general is analogous to something that went on in the world of leadership about 40 years ago. Way back then, there was a management writer named Robert Greenleaf, and he came up with the idea of what he called servant leadership, servant leadership. And it was a really radical idea at the time, and it was this. He said, we got to turn the pyramid upside down. Leaders aren't at the top. They're at the bottom. And the way that leaders gain the legitimacy to lead is by serving first and leading next. Now, this is a radical idea. It became ever so slowly embraced. And I think we're in this era of servant selling, that the best way to sell is just to serve. 
And I mean serve in a transcendent sense, not just, you know, good customer service, although that's important. But basically say, you know, when you're dealing with a client or a customer, what can I do to make this person's life better? Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to get immediate financial returns to that on every encounter. But that kind of ethic, what can I do to make this person's life better, is the way you build a reputation. It's the way that you get people to recommend you. It's a way that you build loyalty. And so there is, at some level, one of the great advantages of working for yourself is that you don't have to do all the things that large companies do. You're not always chasing, you know, trying to boost your numbers by X percent for a quarter, for a particular quarter. So you can, you can play a little bit more, not all of it, but you can play a little bit more of the long game. And if you, I can't imagine anybody going wrong if, as a freelancer, if they have the ethic of serving first and selling next. You know, it doesn't mean that you give away all your work or anything like that, but what it means is that you, you look at your encounters no matter what you're doing. Again, whether you are a management consultant or whether you're a freelance editor or whether you are you know, an industrial designer or whether you are a software architect, you look at your encounters and say, what can I do to make this other side's life better off? And over time, there is a huge payoff to that. The other thing that's advantageous is goes to something else, I can't remember which of you said it, uh, which is that you can sleep at night. Well, one thing that I want to just add to this is that you're talking about selling or serving and then selling. And there's a list for an open source project. They actually have a commercial product, you know, that they open sourced a good portion of it called Canvas, and it's done by a company here in Utah called Instructure. And, you know, I've been actively participating on their list for a few years, and I just help people solve their problems with the open source version. And what that has turned into is I don't even have to do the selling because they come to me and say, we know you can help us and we want to pay you to help us. And it does. It, it kind of greases all those wheels and makes it really easy for you to have that conversation because they already know that you're willing to help and that you have the expertise to do it. Yep, exactly. I think we have time for one more question before we get to the picks. I want to make sure that we get done in time for, for Dan to go do his stuff. Anyone? All right. I'm going to ask my question then. How do you tell people to get over their fear or aversion to selling? I mean, what what advice do you have for them? Because it's one thing to say, get over it. It's another thing to yeah, say, yeah, yeah. you kind of already do it, but, you know, are, are there specific things that people can do? Well, I mean, I, I actually think that instead of telling people they already do it, I would show them that they already do it. And so, you know, ask them how they spent the last day, what they did in the last day or the last week. And chances are you can find something in there that was selling and that was probably pretty effective. Uh, the other thing that I would do is I would, you know, I'm a big believer in slow, steady progress and starting small. So... If you're averse to selling, you know, don't go and pitch a huge client. Maybe take an existing client and pitch a new idea. That is, do something smaller as a way to build up your muscles for doing something larger. Does it change when you're pitching somebody larger? Well, I mean, when you're pitching a larger enterprise, yeah, uh, yes and no. I mean, I think the underlying principles are the same. That is, you want to be, you want your pitch to be an invitation. You want to be really, really well prepared. You want to see it from their perspective and all that. Uh, I think that the big difference is that there are, it's harder to figure out sometimes who the actual decision makers are. And so you have to do a little bit of due diligence beforehand to figure that out. And also a little bit of reading of the room during an encounter to figure out who's really making the decisions here. Yeah, it makes sense. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and do the picks. Curtis, start us off with the picks. 
I'm going to pick a book called Getting Naked, which is about being honest and serving your customers, really. It's a fable um, about consultants and how to operate your consulting business, which I enjoy just because it's a fun read and there's lots of good information for you there to run business better. Awesome. Eric, what are your picks? So my pick today is a book called Free Agent Nation. Uh, I don't remember the author. Um, Some guy. Yeah. No, but actually, I read this in 2007, right before I started consulting. And a couple months ago, I was talking with someone, I referred back to ideas in this book about how like the industry as a whole is changing and all that. If you're doing or thinking about freelancing, like this book is a really great big picture of how stuff works. I, like I said in chat, I think I've bought it like three or four times already and given copies away or, well, I have a paper one by one, a digital version. It's, it's a very good book. Thanks so much. I owe you like $7 in royalties now. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Reuven, what are your picks? Okay, so I'm in Beijing, and so I've been enjoying, ha ha ha, enjoying what's known as the Great Firewall of China, which blocks out such small internet companies as Google. One day they'll get big, and then the Chinese will, I'm sure, regret their decision. In any event, so what everyone here does is they use a VPN, and it becomes a bit of a cat and mouse game, which VPN is blocked and which is available. So uh, I've been using for my two weeks here ExpressVPN, which seems to be working pretty well. Well, as well as any of them can be used. So I definitely pick that for those of you traveling to China. In the oh, the Great Firewall got him. <laughs> kids, <laughs> we recently got a, a Windows machine for my kids, and we needed to really restrict how much time they were spending on the computer. So we found this program called Times Up Kids, and you can assign each user a limit as to how long they can stay on, and then, well. They're not allowed on the computer anymore. And Mac people, of course, might laugh at this because it's built into the system. But if you have a Windows machine at home, and I, I've been told vicious rumors that there are such people in the world, then um, that's a good choice. Anyway, just a quick third pick is I recently discovered the show Numbers, which went off air a few years ago, but is now on Netflix. And I've definitely been enjoying that. So anyway, those are my picks for this week. Yeah, that's a good show. All right, I'm going to pick a few books. These are books that I've I've read recently that I really enjoyed. I got them off of the they're the required reading for Dave Ramsey's employees, and so uh, I'll pick them kind of in the order I really liked them. The first one is QBQ, the question behind the question, and it's about it's about personal responsibility. So instead of asking why is this happening to me, you ask what can I do to make it better. And he walks through the whole process of how you formulate those questions so that they are productive questions. Another book that uh, he also recommends is The Go-Getter, and it's kind of a fable or story that, you know, so it's fictional, and it kind of demonstrates what a go-getter is and, you know, the kind of people that, that you want to have around. And as I'm looking at hiring more subcontractors, this is something that really kind of helped me solidify uh, some of the things that I'm looking for in those folks. And the last one, I have to say that they took the metaphor a little bit too far, but I like the under, underlying principle, is Rhinoceros Success. And the whole premise is that you choose something that you want to charge down, something that you really want, and you focus on it and chase it until you get it. And like I said, the metaphor, they take it a little too far. It's a little bit hokey. But overall, I think it was just awesome. I'm definitely going to pick that as well. And last, you know, we do, we all kind of picked it, I guess, as the book club book, but To Sell is Human is one of those books that I tell everybody that is looking at going freelance to go pick up because it really does outline for you, you know, you can sell. It's a normal thing. It's not this terrible, sleazy or bad thing and that you can really understand 
the principles behind it. It's it's not this mysterious thing either. So anyway, those are my picks. Dan, what are your picks? I've got a few. I want to recommend two books. One of them is, I know it's a book that I think has been recommended before on the show, but that my recommendation might only just reinforce that. It's a book called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, which is about how to overcome resistance and get stuff done. That's one book. So uh, the second, good. So yeah, good. It's such a, yeah, it's a wonderful book. I, I even have a little card on my desk that says Beat the Resistance. Uh, there's another book called The Little Book of Talent by a guy named Daniel Coyle, and it's a really, really good, super short distillation of some of the best research in high performance. Really, really short, really, really punchy about you know what kind of pra- what kind of practice matters, what kind of mindset matters, and so forth. So very science based, but totally acceptable, uh, accessible. I am a devout. So that's those are two books. Uh, let me give you two tools. One of which is fairly commonplace. The other, I think, is less so. Everybody and their brother might use this now, but I don't know what I would do without Dropbox. Dropbox is my co-pilot. Dropbox is if someone took away my Dropbox. I would find a gun and go after that person. And I don't even have a gun, and I don't even love guns. But I would go, I would find, I would get guns to go after anybody who took away my Dropbox because it's such an essential tool for what I do right now. The second tool is, I know people have recommended Moleskin notebooks way too much. I don't think Moleskin is the best notebook out there. I think people are missing the boat. The best notebook out there is a notebook called Field Note. Field Notes. Check it out. Fieldnotesbrand.com. Fieldnotesbrand.com. Small operation in Chicago that has the best pocket notebooks there are. Awesome. We have a couple minutes left. Do you want to briefly tell us about the other books that you've written? Sure. Let's see. So we already talked about Free Agent Nation. I also wrote a book. uh, The second book was a book called A Whole New Mind, when the subtitle of that is Why Right-Brainers Will Rule the Future, and it is a book about that makes the argument that certain kinds of abilities, really SAT spreadsheet abilities, are becoming less important because they're easy to outsource and easy to automate, and that a different kind of ability, artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking is becoming more important. The third book was a book called The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, The Last Career Guide You'll Ever Need, which is a uh, career guide uh, in the form of Japanese comics, Japanese manga, fun little book. And then I wrote a book called Drive About the Science of Motivation. And the latest book, as we've been talking about, and as you just recommended, is a book called To Sell is Human. Do you have another one in the works? Not that I know of. No, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm actually taking a little bit of a break right now, taking a little bit of a kind of mini sabbatical to, to think through some new projects. Cool. Well, thanks for coming. We really appreciate you taking the time. And, you know, hopefully this helps some people figure out uh, what they want to do in the way of selling. Awesome. I hope so. Thanks for having me on the program. Working to learn from designers at Amazon and Quora, developers at SoundCloud and Heroku, and entrepreneurs like Patrick Ambron from Brand Yourself. You can level up your design, dev, and promotion skills at Level Up Con, taking place October 8th and 9th in downtown Saratoga Springs, New York. Only two hours by train from New York City, this is the perfect place to enjoy early fall at Oktoberfest while you mingle with industry pioneers in a resort town in upstate New York. Get your ticket today at levelupcon.com. Space is extremely limited for this premium conference experience. Don't delay. Check out levelupcon.com now. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. 
They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum. 